0: Welcome to the Redemption Church podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining
1: us. Our scripture this morning is from Mark 8, 31 to 38. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Mel. As we walk through the Lenten season, I want to encourage you with this. That we are fasting, many of us are fasting from different things, abstaining and preparing ourselves through this Lenten season as we pursue God. But I want to remind you that as you come in this morning... You have been pursued by God. The gospel is not about your perfect response to him. The gospel is about God's perfect and gracious heart toward you. All right. So we're really deep into February now. And it is uh, just as February as it always is in Seattle. And so one thing I was reminding our team of this morning is something uh, that maybe some of us didn't wake up thinking about this morning. And it doesn't usually occur to me, but occasionally I feel like the Lord taps me on the shoulder to remind me of some things, as he does with you. Um, Today's a very ordinary day. We're ordinary people in an ordinary church with an extraordinary God who loves to show up and shake things up in our lives on very ordinary moments. And so one thing I just wanna remind all of us of this morning is the simple reality that we have gathered in the name of the person and the work of Jesus, and we're asking him to meet with us now through the proclamation of the gospel he has promised where two or three gather in his name, he is with us. And so this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and welcome Jesus to church um, as he has welcomed us into the family of God. Okay, let's do that. Lord Jesus, good morning. You're the King, you're the King of Kings. And this morning, there are people. Who've from all walks of life and navigating all kinds of different things. Some are extremely excited with, we know there's babies about to be born into our church, a lot of them. Thank you for those that are enjoying this beautiful season of life. Bless them. We rejoice with the rejoicing. There's also people here today that are carrying some of life's heaviest griefs. And have shown up this morning looking for a crumb to fall from your table. Thank you, bread of heaven, come down. So we weep with the weeping. In our ordinary morning today, we ask you, Jesus, to be revered. And give us minds and hearts that are open and malleable, able to be shaped by your hands. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit to you, God our Father. Amen. Okay, so we're in our second week of Lent. The word just means springtime as we're preparing for Easter. And so during the Lenten season, we do some deep self-reflection and some examination as Christians are called to do. So the vision of our church, by the way, is a very simple vision. We're responding to God and the gospel through living lives that are faithfully present to God, to ourselves, and to each other. And in this Lenten season, it's a there's a big call to become present to yourself and to actually do some real examining of where you're at in your walk with God right now. So here's a couple of verses that just play into what we mean by being present to yourself. Paul instructs Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine closely. Christians are very good oftentimes at watching our doctrine. We know what to think and how to think and what we believe and our apologetics and our systematic theology and all of our doctrine we get that stuff down. That's great. Good. Do that. Cling to good doctrine. Yes. But to watch your life means to watch your relationships, to watch your habits, to watch who you're becoming, watch how you're acting and how you actually carry yourself in this world. To watch your actual life. Another from Proverbs 4.23. To guard your heart or to keep your heart. One image that's That'll be helpful here in Seattle is when we think about going, you know, spring is right around the corner and summer, and we'll have, you know, the Japanese gardens going, and it's going to be unbelievably beautiful, and we can't wait to get there. When you get there, that's the word that you should put in your mind to guard or to keep. That when God envisions your heart, envision those Japanese gardens, something that's been well maintained. Every single blade of grass is accounted for. Every single thing is in its proper place. When God speaks to us, he says, I want you to guard your heart. Not meaning just walk around with your fists up all the time, but more like a gardener tends or keeps or pays close attention to what's going on within, with who we're becoming. So that's what this season is about. It's about becoming present to yourself and doing some examining. And it's hard work because as soon as we look under the hood, we find out, oh my gosh, there is a lot of work to do and I have a long, long way to go. Here's what's great. We're all in this together. Every one of us come in here this morning in the same position of needy people in desperate need of the grace of God. Okay? So if you feel like I'm way out, I'm like, I don't belong this morning because of the things I've done, the things I've said, the things I'm addicted to, the things that I'm going through right now. If, if, if that's you and you feel like you're way out and someone else is just way ahead of you and you'll never catch up with them, the point is not to catch up with them, the point is to look to Jesus. And so if that's you this morning and you're going, dude, no, you really don't know. I do know, I'm a pastor, I know what you get into. Because I get into these things, too. And so this morning, we're all here as recipients of the grace and the mercy of Almighty God. And so you belong this morning. And I'm not talking to your neighbor. I'm talking to you. Okay. All right. So let's do it. As you just heard this passage read, it's unbelievably challenging. Um, It's not because... um, the Greek is complex. Uh, in fact, it's some of the easiest stuff to understand in the whole Bible. Uh, the reason why this passage is challenging, it's what Mark Twain said. It ain't the parts of the Bible. It ain't, I don't know, that's what he said. It ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do. <laughs> this is one of those passages like I understand, and that's why I'm struggling with this passage. So, here we go. Jesus, it says this, And he began to teach them, he's with his disciples, people that profess to follow him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Okay, so Jesus had taken this name, Son of Man, up for himself. It's the one title he uses for himself And he is pulling from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel in Daniel chapter seven has this vision of the throne room of God. It's unbelievable. I'll read you the the main part though where Jesus gets this language, son of man. In my night vision, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominions, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom, one that will never be destroyed. Jesus takes this son of man language up for himself and had taught his disciples essentially, that's me. <laughs> that's, that's That's incredible. So Jesus has been teaching the disciples, I'm the son of man. Peter has just confessed, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one of God. You're you're clearly, you're, you're God in the flesh. Okay. And Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer. But when you see that passage, you don't see anything in this passage right here going, the son of man suffering. No, that's the son of man reigning in glory. So Peter is confused. And it's not because the Old Testament was inconsistent or it left out some details like, would the Son of Man suffer? Yeah, yeah. But you have to move around in the prophets a bit to see a little more of that. Remember like the famous passages from Isaiah? called the Suffering Servant Passages. If you go, if you want to read through those during the Lenten season, it's a beautiful place to camp out. But these poems are roughly from Isaiah chapter 40 through I think 55. Right there is where you have these Suffering Servants. So Peter is struggling with this. Jesus has said the Son of Man is going to suffer and be handed over, betrayed, die, and Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. That's not gonna happen. And let me tell you why it's not gonna happen, Jesus. I built my whole life on you. I left my fishing business, my family, everything is all about you. What do you mean you're going to die? No, I know what the Christ is supposed to do. The Christ is supposed to liberate us from Rome and reestablish the kingdom of Israel the way it's supposed to be. There's gonna be a theocracy, and on that's how it's supposed to go. I disagree. And he begins to light into Jesus and to correct Jesus. Which he's in God's face. And doesn't get the wrath, but instead is corrected and instructed, but isn't struck by a lightning bolt. So it makes sense why he's lighting into Jesus. What do you mean you're going to die and rise from the dead? Talking about a premature death? Where are you getting this? This is crazy. So he's lighting into Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, so Jesus has the other 11 guys standing there, and they're watching this whole argument go down. Jesus looks over at the rest of the guys, and they're all mouths wide open going, oh, my gosh, Peter is lighting into Jesus. Like, we've seen Jesus raise the dead. He's, he's, he's going to kill him. But Jesus looks at the disciples. And he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is hands down the harshest rebuke in the Bible. Other than maybe, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, it's It's up there and he calls him um, Satan like about as bad as it could be get behind me Satan you'll never see the things of God when you're out ahead of me you've lost your way so he begins to rebuke Peter Peter um, you didn't come down to the fishing dock and find me I found you and Peter you were not preceded by Moses and the prophets and John the baptizer, pointing, saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that was about me. Um, Peter, you're not the king of Israel or the savior of the world. That would be me. Peter, you're not given all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, that would be me. Peter, you did not come down from the right hand of the Father. That would be me. Peter, you fulfilling your dreams... Um, the hope of humanity and all of creation isn't hanging on you getting your way. It's all about me. So he's lighting right back into Peter and saying, you're completely wrong. You're completely wrong. If you're going to see the things of God, you're going to have to get behind Jesus and look through Jesus and only Jesus to see the things of God. That's Jesus' claim. Get behind me. And so there's hardly a sharper rebuke in the Bible, and yet it's easy to kind of dig at Peter, which we love to have him in the Bible because at least he, he says the things you and I would have said more often than not, if we're honest. But what about you? What if he was looking at you right now? Get behind me, Alex. Are you out ahead of Jesus? Or another way to ask it, are you living your life in such a way that you are out ahead of Jesus and then you occasionally look over your shoulder treating him like a genie in a bottle, asking him to just bless your current endeavor? Like, you're into this, right? Great. Without letting him answer? In what ways are you out ahead of Jesus? Maybe that's the more blunt way to just say it. How are you out ahead of Jesus? Um, so, in preaching, it's a strange thing. I was explaining to our pastors this morning preaching's a strange thing because uh, you want to be faithful to the Bible and communicate what the Bible's saying, but you also don't want to just be like a theological data center. You know, like, here's what the passage means, and then you're like, okay, I guess thanks for that. I'm going to go figure it out. You also want in to, the, in the preaching experience, is to say something about how this has changed my life, too. Like, I, I want, did, does this passage mean anything to you, pastor? So that's where you, you get language like testimony. So um, I'll share a bit of my testimony here this morning with you because I think it might be of some help. Um, I tend to get out ahead of Jesus when tragedy and great sorrow strikes my life because I don't trust him to actually comfort me or meet my needs or provide for me in the ways that I think I need provision. And so I'll get out ahead of him and I'll take the reins because I I, got to take control. I mean, we're going through a death, we're going through a tragedy, we're going through something overwhelming and it's out of control and I don't know that you're gonna actually come through right here so I'll take control. I'll call the shots. And it's very easy to do as we scramble for protection and comfort and vision and all the rest. It's an easy thing to do to get out in front of Jesus. If you're like me, you'll come up with a vision that you think he's into and he'll sign off on. Not one that you know that he's like clearly against. So here's how it worked for me. Tomorrow, February 26th, marks the 15th anniversary of the passing of my father. Um, On February 3rd, I was in 2009. I was in Atlanta. I had just planted our church in a bar that I worked at. I'll tell you about it some other time. Um, I had just planted our church. Our church was five months old. It was a couple hundred people running two services in this bar. And I got on an airplane to go to Raleigh, North Carolina, to go to a church planting conference thing. And as the plane was taxiing out, my brother texted me and said, get to the hospital as fast as possible. And so as the plane was like beginning to taxi out, I raised my hand and flagged the attendant and the attendant actually unbuckled and came over. I'm like, this, that's not how you're supposed to do things. But she did. She came over and I said, I just got a text. I know I'm not supposed to be on airplane mode. I got a text. Uh, I got to get to the. Hospital, like now, and she went to the to the captain. The captain turned the plane around and let me get off the plane. And Jana came and got me. We raced straight to the hospital. Um, and it was it was too late. I walked in to see my dad having multiple seizures. Um, he had endocarditis, which is a heart disease that he didn't know he had, um, and I watched. I watched my dad go into a vegetative state. And it was traumatizing. And so, 23 days later, he died in the hospital, or died at at hospice. And he was 56 years old, and I was 28. And so about a week and a half or so later was the funeral. But just prior to the funeral, on March the 6th, uh, it was our anniversary. Jan and I, it was our sixth wedding anniversary. So we're out to eat. And that night at dinner, at our anniversary, she's like, hey, I'm pregnant. I'm like, oh my gosh. Maybe you've met Tove. That would be Tove. On March 7th, I got up and put on a suit and went and buried my dad. On March 8th, I preached the gospel at our church. On March 9th, I flew to Seattle and kept on grinding away in church. Um... I got out ahead of Jesus because I did what many men tend to do is when tragedy strikes, you just bury yourself in work. And I buried myself in really good work, and, and I got very good at it. So I started like finishing degrees and writing books and traveling and soon all my heroes that I was listening to online forever and ever were my friends and they were calling me and you're just star is rising Alex and I just kept going and going and going and of course the more glorious the opportunities and the more flashy they looked the more obviously God was into it so I finally wound up leading Mars Hill Church in Ballard which is kind of the Christian evangelical Mecca of the day. And man, I was doing the thing, right? It's easy to mistake crowds for fruitfulness, and it's easy to run on adrenaline and caffeine and hype and mistake that for the work of the Holy Spirit. So I was out in front of Jesus, and then I got hit by Mark Dreskel's big, bad bus. And it hurt. It really hurt. It hurt me, and it hurt my family. But I got right back up, because... By golly, I got a lot of fight in me, and I will outfight anybody. So I just got right back up and kept on going. I didn't sign the NDA at Living Stones Church in Reno, Nevada, so I can just talk very plainly. So I went to another church, a big church, and I kept preaching, and I kept writing, and I kept evangelizing, and I kept raising up leaders and money and going and going and going and going and going and going. I didn't slow down for anything. Because men get up, and men perform, and men work, and men don't cry, and men... Is this resonating with anybody? So... Did that for two years, only to find, only to come home and be devastated by the reality that Jana's faith had completely died while I was grinding away and working for God. Because remember, anybody can work for God. You don't have to be Christian to work for God. Anybody can sign up and be an employee. I was so busy working for God and producing for God because God needs me, obviously. I came home and Jana's faith is dead because we were working in another corrupt, religious, abusive system where people are getting away with you name it. And it was awful. So my marriage was in the dumps. I got hit by another bus. So we packed up, moved back to Woodstock, Georgia, to my mom's house. I moved back into the bedroom that I left when I was 19. That wasn't humbling at all. So weird. So painful. And I went to Trinity Anglican Church, and I met with my pastor, Chris, and my friend, Elliot, Grudem flew down from, um, from Raleigh. And Elliot met with us in a Sunday school room, me and Jana, and he just said, Alex, um, as we were talking about your story, it sounds like you kind of grieved your dad like a pastor, but not like a son. I'd encourage you to take a year out of ministry and go to therapy every day you possibly can (laughs) and go to marriage counseling and learn to follow Jesus. During that hiatus, um, I found out that I, I didn't grieve my dad like a son or like a pastor because I didn't have a pastor's heart. I mean, I had character and I had calling and I had talent or ambition and all that, sure. But I didn't even grieve as a pastor or a son and a heart that can't grieve is a heart that can't love or be loved. Why do you think God was crying in Genesis chapter six anyway? So it was then at that point, that we began to learn lessons like all of our wealth is in our relationships, and that Jesus is gentle and we should live and die in a state of gratitude, and the way we're going to carry out our life and ministry is through responding to God and the gospel through being faithfully present to God and to ourselves and to each other. Getting out ahead of Jesus. Really costs. When Jesus says, Get behind me, it's a call and a command to follow, to stop, to give up, to resign, to submit, to conform to his will and to simply show up and say okay Lord what's your vision for my life what would you have me do King if you'll still have me I'll serve however you want me to so when Jesus Jesus rebukes Peter he's not being mean he's trying to save him get behind me I'm your covering I'm the lamb get behind me get beneath me Matthew's gospel even says get out of my way Peter You're a hindrance. Go read it. Like, wow. So I'd encourage you to take some time and be vulnerable before God and your own self and your own story and ask yourself the honest question, in what way or ways am I tempted to get out in front of Jesus? Again, again, When we get out in front of Jesus, we get out in front of him with good ideas. Peter's idea about Jesus not dying on a Roman cross sounds like a good idea. Charging forward for me in ministry looked like a good idea. But it wasn't God's idea. I still had my mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. In what ways do you need to put your mind on the things of God? How's that for vulnerable? All right. We all feeling awkward now in church? You're welcome, dude. There you go. Okay. So, when Jesus says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, once you set your mind on the things of God, you can begin to see the things of God working around you often. And you might even reframe what you think is successful in this world. For me, I just took a typical evangelical metric of what counts as success. Boy, this is honest today. I did not plan on being this honest, but here you go. I, uh, I thought the bigger the crowd, the more accolades and attaboys and all the things that come with uh, church world I thought the more of those that I can be a part of and accomplish or whatever the more the more of God I was seeing gosh But the work that Jesus actually does is the work that is most necessary in this world. And what I mean by this is is this. To get behind Jesus and to look through Jesus and to see what he's doing, he is making absolute masterpieces around us all the time. What do they look like? A proud husband that knows how to say, I'm sorry, babe. My attitude sucks right here. That's the work of God, because if you've met a proud man, only God, only God can work like that. When you see people who have accomplished much and have been given an enormous amount of resources, stop tipping God and start living sacrificially, and you see people's hearts move toward the things of God, you go, wow, you could be doing anything with your life and you're giving to those charities and to those people and living open-handed. You see, the things of God are oftentimes what we might overlook in the name of like looking for more flash and bang and lights and hype and all that. But the things that Jesus is doing are magnificent all around us. But in the only way we can actually see his work is if we are behind him, looking through him as he puts his hands into the world. And suddenly, you see, he's at work constantly, constantly putting back together friendships, putting back together marriages, opening doors for someone to go find employment, restoring someone's health, restoring someone's faith after a season of walking around or away. Okay, so that's one of the verses. I got like a lot of verses to preach. Um, So this, here's what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Has anyone not heard that verse? I think we've all heard that at some point. It's like up there with like John
1: 3.16.
0: If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Um, Here's how we tend to hear it if we're being self-righteous, i.e. all of us often. If anyone would come after me, let him deny his neighbor, place a cross on his or her back, and call that following Christ. And it's easy to read the Bible like that. If anyone would come after me, that means you. And I got a whole list of ways in which you need to change and you need to repent and you need to get your act together And so when the world has a problem with the church, it's because the church walks up and places all of God's morals and ethics and expectations on the life of a Christian. When we take those and lay those on unbelievers' backs, they go, I don't want anything to do with your gospel, man. I don't believe in your God. How about that? What would serve us well as Christians is to listen with the intention of changing ourselves. Not just if you'd get your act together, then the kingdom of God would come into the world. Yeah, right. That's how Pharisees read the Bible. Always with somebody else in mind. And Christians will come to church and they'll wait for a moment and then they'll get in the car And the husband will look over at the wife and go, see, if you would just do what Alex just said, it's like, that's not the point, dude. Jesus does not enjoy being weaponized against somebody. Like, that's not how this is intended to work. But to deny ourselves, to show up saying, God, would you change me? Would you work on me? I know how far I have to go. And, I, and work in my neighbors for sure. Yes and amen. But I'm here to change because I'm, I, I understand where I'm at right now. How does God want me to change? And what's sad, and I'm telling you Christians, especially if you've been in the church for any amount of time, The saddest part of this is that you can fall into a rut in which you listen to sermons or you read the Bible and are always ready to apply it to somebody else and you can do that for days that turn into weeks, that turn into months, that turn into decade after decade after decade thinking everybody else needs to change except you and you go 50 years of knowing Jesus and don't make a single inch in your own discipleship because it's always about somebody else growing up. But not you and so you don't grow in your giving or your serving or your holiness or your sacrifice you don't because it's always about somebody else that needs to change and somebody else needs to repent but Jesus always when he's dealing with us he's coming right up to us in our own face and go I'm talking to you Alex I'm talking to you dude and so the warning for all of us is to be mindful that he is consistently talking to us first, not just a crowd out there. If you'll listen to the Bible that way, if you'll listen to Jesus in that way, see if you're not different within the next seven days. Try it for seven days. Jesus, work on me. Give me your heart. Give me your mind. See if he doesn't answer that prayer. See. So, how does a person deny himself and take up the cross and follow Jesus? To deny ourselves means that we become present to our own self and story, temptations, proclivities to live on our own terms. To confess Jesus, not just with our lips, but also with our minds, our motives. To confess Him before you pick up your phone. To confess Him with our dreams confess him on the drive home at work to confess him in the grocery store the saint patrick's prayer says christ is with me christ before me christ behind me christ beneath me christ above me christ on my right christ on my left christ when i lie down christ when i sit down christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eyes who see me, Christ in the ears that hear me. That's
1: what
0: what Jesus is getting at. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. To have a life that says, Jesus, I want everything about me to be seen in relation to you. Everything about me. I want somehow to be able to tie it back to you. From how I sleep, to how I spend my money, to how I have relationships. I want everything to be just completely in relation to you. From my marriage, to my kids, to my friends, to whatever I'm doing at work, I want everything to be seen in relation to you. I don't want a single part of my life not illumined by you, Jesus. You lead me into what it means to be a whole human being. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Whatever you do, don't sit there indifferent to these words. All this saving and losing and forfeiting your life and soul. How do the words lose your soul strike you in Seattle this morning? I don't know that it's a thing that many of us pay a lot of attention to. I mean, honestly, I mean, we don't want to lose it and be damned or something like that. But I'm not trying to be a saint either. How does it sound to lose your soul? You lose a night out, we're grumpy. Uh, If you miss out on an experience here in Seattle, we're very disappointed. Lose some money, we're furious but our souls, most of us are content with just kind of getting by. Bare minimum kind of stuff. When the Bible uses the word soul in the New Testament, it's psyche, suke, like your, your, your psychology. But it's not just talking about psychology. The Greek is pulling from the Hebrew, nefesh, which was basically when God breathes into Adam, he makes him a living being. When God breathes into his nostrils, he becomes nefesh. He becomes a living human being. It means the whole you. Your whole self. The material and immaterial you. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How do those words strike you today? Are you interested in finding your life? What would it look like to find your life? A life that you don't have to achieve through climbing the ladder in Seattle, Washington in 2024. Thank you, God. But rather a life that you can receive. An identity that can be given to you rather than one that you have to create. That's entirely different. You'll have to stop working for God and start letting him adopt you into his family. And then Jesus gives these very hard words about being unashamed. Whoever is unashamed, or whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of Him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when He comes in His glory. As Christians, as those who profess to follow Jesus, there's a temptation to become ashamed of the words of God. That somehow our ideas are dated and primitive. That somehow they don't belong or don't fit. There's a temptation to become ashamed of Jesus. And this is why the cross has to remain at the center of what we believe as followers. Because as long as we think first and foremost about our ethics and our morals and our worldview, if you think about that first, then shame can win the day. But if the cross of Jesus is at the very center, And that is first and foremost. When we behold the man on the cross, my sin on his shoulders, when we behold the cross first, that's where we get the strength to remain consistently unashamed of who he is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God under salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. I'm not ashamed about what Jesus did for me. That's my Savior on a cross. That's the son of man on a cross. So no, I'm not ashamed of what he has to say about sex and sexuality. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of what he has to say about justice in this world. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed about what he says about violence and nonviolence, laying down our swords. I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed that he and he alone Is the exclusive means by which human beings might be reconciled to their Creator and find abundant life. I'm not ashamed of Him. I have nothing to be ashamed of. He bore my shame, my greed, my lust, my pride, my iniquity, all the filth that I created in and of myself. Jesus became sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. I have nothing to be ashamed of in relation to him, but everything to boast as soon as we hear his name. We hit our knees in worship. Jesus is our king, and we are absolutely unashamed of him, no matter how awkward we look in Seattle, Washington, because of the ways in which we've chosen to live our lives. Humble, generous, Open minded, committed to the truth, kind, not arrogant. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, self controlled people. That is what Jesus is filling the world with. So no, we're not ashamed of him or his words. The cross has to stay at the center of all that we do as his followers. (sighs) Okay, (laughs) I think I'm gonna call it there. Oh, no, I'm not. I want to say this really quickly. Truly, stick with me. With the gap that we feel between ourself and God because of our sin. How does that gap close? It closes through repentance. Repent is an Indo-European word that is often tinged with a lot of sorrow and misery, but it wasn't in the Hebrew mind. So to let God speak first, the word repent just means to go home. And it literally means to turn around and go home as if like, if you're like me, you walk out to your car and you've left your car keys in your house. I do this daily. Um, To walk out and go, oh, I gotta go back and grab my keys. Walk out without my keys. That oh, that's all the Bible means by repentance. It's not filled with shame. It's not filled with shame or misery. Sure, it's uncomfortable. Sure, your heart is contrite. Sure, you're regretting breaking God's heart, but that's godly sorrow. It's not sit around and scourge yourself. So when the gospel calls you to repent and when Jesus calls you to repent, it's this. Hey, come home. Come home. That's the call of the gospel on your life today. If you don't know Jesus, that's him. That's what he's inviting you to. And if you do know Jesus and you're at odds with him or distant to him right now in some areas of your life it's a simple come back the door's open, no he's not a grump he's not mad, he's not about to hit you the invitation is to come home, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance and as soon as you walk in he says let's start new I got no problem with you I already buried your sin and I rose from the dead for your justification all my righteousness is yours so glad you're here, let's start today Could he be that good? Yes, only God could be that good. Okay. Now, with that being said, stand with me to your feet. We're going to take communion together. As we do, before we take communion, let's uh, read our prayer again from the Lenten calendar. These are called colics. All right, let's do it. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, And the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat. That same night, he took wine, poured it into a cup, and said, my blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. Because Jesus died, And because Jesus rose from the dead, you belong in the family of God.